Welcome to BIO, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. BIO is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm BIO member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Today, we're honored to feature excerpts from a fascinating lecture from the City University of New York's Leon Levy Center for Biography. In September 2019, David Nassau, the award-winning author of biographies about Joseph P. Kennedy, William Randolph Hearst, and Andrew Carnegie, delivered the 12th annual Levy Center Lecture, an engaging presentation he titled, My Three Moguls. Here's David Nassau. This talk originally had another title, which I'm not allowed to say, but if you come up to me afterwards, I will whisper it in your ears. Critiques of the biographical enterprise are legion and legendary. The most scathing have come from those who feared their lives would be hacked to pieces by the biographer's cleaver. According to Michael Holroyd, who's compiled a slew of these critiques, J.M. Barry set his curse on any would-be biographer by praying, may God blast anyone who writes a biography of me. George Eliot declared that biographers are generally a disease of English literature. And this despite the fact that the love of her life was Goethe's biographer. Jermaine Greer, echoing Rebecca West, described biographies as pre-digested carrion <laughs> and called on biographers to take up an honorable trade. These critiques are not going to go away, and they shouldn't. Our portraits are not encomia, not hagiography, not always flattering, and seldom, as Lytton Strachey advised us, discreet. The subjects of biographies have interests that aren't those of their biographers. That's part of the reason I prefer to write about dead people. Of course, there are problems here as well as the dead leave behind executors and agents and relatives who can be just as annoying, maybe more so than the living subjects. It has become a staple of commentaries on biography in academic settings such as this one to begin with Rodney Dangerfield-like self-pitying pleas for respect, combined with laments that biography is the stepchild of the academy, that we are not taken seriously, that we get no respect, because our audience is too large, our writing too accessible, our methodology weak, our archival research limited, our work on individuals ignorant of the larger forces currents trends, systems, structures. Well, I'm here tonight to proclaim the opposite, that biography as scholarly craft and literary art is stronger than ever. The Leon Levy Center for Biography, an extraordinary partnership between the Leon Levy Foundation and the Graduate Center, can take a bit of credit for this. 
with the generous and wise support of Shelby White and the Leon Levy Foundation, and under the leadership of Nancy Milford, Brenda Wineapple, Gary Giddens, and now Kai Bird, we've done our part to make manifest to the literary community and the academic community the vital role of biography in scholarship interpretation and the construction and dissemination of knowledge. Bio International has also helped to make our task accessible. The stories of biography's demise are not rooted in any reality. We are getting respect where it's most important from editors, agents, publishers, booksellers, bloggers, critics, and most importantly, readers. Biographies of all shapes and sizes in multiple platforms at multiple lengths for adults and young adults and children are being published and read and celebrated and then filmed and videoed and recorded on audio. Even in this era of tweets and short attention span media, the long biography, its obituary written and rewritten, continues to be published and read. David Blight's recent biography of Frederick Douglass, a commercial and critical success, is 861 pages long. And multi-volume biographies, which I remember convincing everyone who would talk to me were dead and gone, they're flourishing. Princeton professor Stephen Kotkin's biography in progress on Stalin is three volumes, three very long volumes. Sidney Blumenthal just published the third volume of his biography on Abraham Lincoln. And Kai tells me there's a fourth and maybe a fifth. Fred Lagerfeld's biography of JFK is going to be two volumes. Our colleague Blanche Cook just completed her three volumes on Eleanor Roosevelt. Bob Caro is working on his fifth volume. David Levering Lewis's biography of W.E. Du Bois was in two volumes, and both won Pulitzer Prizes. Had he written eight volumes, he would have won eight Pulitzers and deserved them. <laughs> in my own discipline, history, biography is triumphant as never before. In the last decade, six of the 10 Pulitzers in history, and remember biography has its own category, but six of the 10 Pulitzers in history went to biographies. The study of history is as critical as it has ever been, and biography, I want to argue, is perhaps the perfect vehicle for writing history. As much as we might want to flee the present, to escape into an ahistorical universe where we don't have to worry about 2020 or the future of our planet and our children and grandchildren, we cannot do so. We live in a river of time, buoyed along on currents from a past towards a future. We can float along that river, oblivious to the currents, and crash into the shoals, or the shore, or the debris that befouls the water, or be swept over a waterfall. Or we can do our best to judge the currents and steer a course towards a destination we have chosen. This metaphor is, like all metaphors, flawed, but meaningful. 
The only way to know where we are in this river of time is to know where we've come from. Our past is vanished. You can't touch it, you can't feel it. It's gone. So too the path that brought us here to this present. But we can construct a simulacrum of that past and that path by telling stories about our journey, about where we've been and where we hope to end up, about the creatures we've encountered on this river of history we travel on, about the color and shape of the sky, what we see on the shore, and the changes we undergo. We are a storytelling species. Our stories define us, create us, connect us, make us human. The stories historians and biographers tell are like those of novelists, works of the imagination. But the historical imagination is quite different than the novelists or the poets or the playwrights. In constructing our stories, we rely on, more than that, we are tethered to what we call our evidence. This evidence doesn't speak for itself. We have to force it to speak to us, and in doing so, give it significance, meaning. Here lies another paradox for the historian and the biographer. We are at one and the same time bound by our evidence and compelled to write beyond it. As Virginia Woolf put it in the autobiography, quote, the novelist is free, the biographer is tied. But she then went on to say that this is a virtue and one of the reasons why biographies are trusted and cherished by their readers. Quote, by telling us the true facts, by sifting the little from the big, and shaping the whole so that we perceive the outline, the biographer does more to stimulate the imagination than any poet or novelist, save the very greatest. I would just as well she didn't give us that save the very greatest. She continues, for few poets and novelists are capable of that high degree of tension which gives us reality. As biographers, we begin with a life and a times. In constructing that life, we describe how our subjects play various roles, but we do not confine them to any one of these roles. We do not go in search of an essential identity, but deal with composites, with the ways in which in every life, gender, class, race, ethnicity, Nativity, sexual orientation, nationality, family background, occupation, vocation, and I could go on and on, intersect and interact. It is the task of the biographer to disentangle, to prioritize, to attempt to understand how, in a given time and place, a self is organized and performed. We must resist at all times the temptation to believe ourselves godlike, to fool ourselves, or attempt to fool our readers into assuming that the life we write is identical to the life that was lived. Our portraits are just that, portraits. They emphasize, accentuate a perspectival view of a living soul, but do not capture that living soul. 
As Benjamin Moser, the biography of Susan Sontag recently put it, quote, biography is a metaphor. It's not the person's life. It's writing about a person's life. Just like a photograph, you have to find your way at looking at her. And this is my way of looking at her. In constructing our subjects, we put them into relationship with the worlds they are born into and inhabit during their lives. Our subjects become meaningful for historical study only when viewed in dialectical relationship with the multiple worlds they inhabit and give meaning to. As Oscar Handlin, who both wrote and edited biographies, put it two decades ago, quote, the proper subject of biography is not the complete person or the complete society, but the point at which the two interact. There, the situation and the individual illuminate one another. The biographer must balance agency and structure at every stage of the process, acknowledging the centrality of social structures and discourses while denying them solidity or permanence. The realms we enter at birth and reside in through our lives are not prison houses, but constituted structures in which inhere possibilities that we as individuals define and exploit. Quote, what defines man, Maurice Merleau-Ponty tells us, is, quote, the capacity of going beyond created structures in order to create others. As individuals, we are neither imprisoned in the worlds we're born into, nor free to make of them as we will. We cannot project any possibility or choose any future we wish onto the horizons of the world we inhabit. The historian as biographer might well take Marx's statement, Groucho's, <laughs> about our possible subjects. Quote, he may look like an idiot and talk like an idiot, but don't let that fool you. He really is an idiot. And furthermore, and this stands true for historians as well, I'm not crazy about reality, but it's still the only place to get a decent meal. <laughs> There's another Marx whose statement we may well take as our credo. From the 18th Brumaire of Louis Bonaparte, and this is Carl, not one of Groucho's brothers, quote, Men, and I apologize for the gendered use, of people make their own history, but they don't make it just as they please. They do not make it under circumstances chosen by themselves, but under circumstances directly encountered, given, and transmitted from the past. The tradition of all the dead generations weighs like a nightmare on the brain of the living. Or as he said it more concisely in the German ideology, quote, circumstances make men just as men make circumstances. Biography is not just another form of storytelling, 
I want to argue it's the summa of historical studies. Why? Because in writing biographies and writing lives, we address the central questions that drive historical research and interpretation. How does change over time occur? What is the role of the individual? To what extent do we, as individuals, as families, as groups, as tribes, as human beings, make the world we hand on to our children? And to what extent are we made by it? Whether our subjects are political figures, portrait painters, cabinet makers, country music crooners, Victorian novelists, monks, military men, or moguls, they are born into traditions, customary ways of doing things, of making art, or playing politics, or singing songs, or writing words. Our task is to interrogate their relationship to these traditions, to probe the ways in which they are constrained by those traditions and structures and the ways they transcend them. I entered the biography game by choosing to write about three moguls, three incredibly rich, powerful white guys who were movers, shakers, game changers, disruptors, in multiple fields of enterprise. In preparing this lecture, I've had to ask myself, why in God's name, why in Cleo's name, did I write white man mogul biographies after writing history from the bottom up? I mean, I spent decades trying to give voice to the voiceless working class and immigrant students and parents who wanted to set the terms of urban education, not have elites do it for them in school to order, immigrant and working class newsies, messengers, and little mothers in children of the city, working, poor, immigrant, and people of color in going out. And then I moved towards white man mogul biography because I, too, was swimming in that river of time. And there were forced upon me questions about political power, which I believed I could best answer through biography. I am an admirer of Foucault, but I wanted to get away from his amorphous, all-encompassing, haunting, spooky notions of power, to ground it, situate it, contextualize it, historicize it. Biographers of powerful white guys have been accused, sometimes justly, of distorting history by falsely insinuating that history is made only by the rich and powerful. In writing the story of my three moguls, I was intent on doing something else, of demonstrating the limits of their powers by showing that despite their wealth and the reach of their influence, they did not make history by themselves or succeed in forcing their visions of a future on the rest of us. I wrote about William Randolph Hearst first because I wanted to understand the myriad ways in which cultural and economic capital can be deployed to accumulate political power. And why did I choose to do it at the time I did? Because of Ross Perot 
who ran for president in 1992 and as late as June was outpolling both Clinton and Bush. Perot qualified for the ballot in all 50 states. And in the end, he won 20 million votes, or 18.9%. The Perot candidacy, especially that summer before he made this stupefyingly dumb decision to select a stupefyingly dumb Admiral James Stockdale as his running mate, <laughs> looked for a long time like he was going to be elected. And that raised all sorts of questions about media and politics, culture in politics, money in politics. Now, Hearst is very different from Perot, but they both had lots of money and they knew how to use every available medium. Take a look at a clip of Perot on television. The guy was remarkable. The aristocratic son of a scandalously successful mining magnate who got himself elected senator and bought a newspaper, though there is much evidence that he was illiterate. William Randolph Hearst was born in California and Harvard educated, or sort of Harvard educated, because when he went to Harvard, the passing grade was 50. <laughs> he moved to New York City. I don't know whether it still is but it's not here. He moved to New York City at age 32, got himself elected and re-elected to Congress on a Tammany ticket, pulled more votes than the socialists. Then he ran for mayor on the Municipal Ownership League ticket, which he had invented, and again outpolled the socialists and the Republicans and the Democrats, but Tammany stole the election from him hundreds of ballot boxes. In those days, there were ballot boxes. You put your ballot into a box. Ended up in the uh, East River. <laughs> he didn't care. He ran for governor next. And Theodore Roosevelt was so frightened of the Hearst candidacy at the possibility that Hearst, who had newspapers in every region of the country and six of its largest cities, some of the widest circulation magazines, a weekly farm magazine, a German-language newspaper, a Yiddish newspaper, and talking pictures, slideshows, graphophone canned speeches, would get elected governor and go right from there to the White House. That Hearst was the only possible Democrat who could pull together Western voters, he was a Westerner, Midwestern populists and Eastern working class and immigrant and union workers. So TR did what he did best. He intervened in the election, though he swore he would not. He found his own candidate, Charles Evans Hughes, squeaky clean, super wasp, Charles Evans Hughes, to run against Hearst. He painted Hearst as a wild radical. He even claimed that Hearst was responsible for the death of William McKinley. And Hearst lost. But he was not finished with politics. He was too bored to run again for office. And he very much wanted to move back to California 
and live his life on two coasts with two wives, um, which was not a recipe for success in politics. He decided that his early successes as a newspaper man gave him the aura of invincibility. He could do whatever he wanted in his personal life. And because he controlled his own media empire, he could get away with it. He knew the laws of libel. And he knew that if anyone in the newspaper business dared go after him, he would destroy him in the courts, and he would find or invent more dirt on them than they had on him. He kept expanding his empire. He invented media by crossing over from newspaper publishing to multiple platforms. By 1922, he, and he very wisely used his publishing companies as fronts, he owned tens of millions of dollars in real estate, including most of Columbus Circle. A castle in Wales, a castle at San Simeon, another in Northern California, a very successful film company, newspapers in Detroit, Boston, Seattle, Los Angeles, Oakland, Syracuse, Rochester, Baltimore, New York, Chicago, Atlanta, Washington, San Antonio, and Milwaukee, the largest circulation newspaper, uh, magazines, including Cosmopolitan, Good Housekeeping, Harper's Bazaar, a couple of radio stations, some newsreel companies, his own news service. He had transformed the world of newspaper publishing by pushing news gathering and dissemination in new directions. And he was willing to use the power of his media to remake the world as he wanted it, which in the 1930s meant pushing back against the New Deal and American involvement in European affairs. Mexico was a different matter because he had a couple of ranches and tens of thousands of acres there. In the end, he was brought down by his own hubris, by the depression, and by the masses of Americans who had once bought his products but dismayed at his politics was so, no longer willing to do so. His downfall was swift. When FDR raised taxes, on the 46 men who had incomes of more than $1 million, Hearst went on the offensive against him, as only William Randolph Hearst could. He portrayed FDR across all his media as Moscow's candidate, Stalin's comrade, a fool, a charlatan, and worse. And when Hearst wanted to say something, he didn't hide behind all the news that's fair and balanced. He published his own editorials on his front page underneath his photograph. His attack on FDR was so virulent, so abrasive, so insulting, and so nonstop that his readers were forced to choose between him and the president. And the readers he had amassed in New York City and elsewhere were the lower middle class and working class people that were FDR's bread and butter and loved and admired the man and his New Deal. Had Hearst kept his mouth shut and his voice out of the media, he might have survived. 
had he understood who his readers were, he might have survived. But he didn't. He couldn't. His readers left him, then his advertisers. He lost his newspapers, his magazine, most of his properties. Only the war and his retirement and death saved the Hearst Corporation for a better day. There was one other tragedy in his life, which I'll mention briefly, which all of his money couldn't solve. And that was the love of his life. Marion Davies was a drunk, a crawling, sneaking liquor in to the closet and the bathroom drunk. He did everything he could to stop her. He brought in every doctor, every cure, but he couldn't do it. Joseph Patrick Kennedy also had a big mouth. He had wanted to be a banker, but when he discovered there were no opportunities in banking in Boston for an Irish Catholic, even one with a Harvard degree and whose girlfriend and later wife was the mayor's daughter, he moved in other directions. He found his way into the cheap immigrant industry the WASP bankers stayed away from, moving pictures. He made his fortune not by fighting against American tribalism and prejudice, but by using it to enrich himself. He had been a Catholic in Boston, but when he got to Hollywood, he reinvented himself. No longer the Catholic outlier, he was now the Christian savior, the prominent non-Jew in a Jewish industry, which, he told the Jewish producers and studio owners, they needed him as the face of Hollywood to beat back the censorship activists all over the country. He took over studio after studio after studio, including Paramount, and he demanded to be paid in stock options, which he manipulated, bought, sold, traded, converted into millions and millions and millions of dollars. Previous biographers of Kennedy have always thought that he made his money in bootlegging because they couldn't figure out where the hell it came from. At one time in the, in the 20s, Fortune magazine said he was the eighth richest man in the country and the only one who didn't have a particular industry behind him, chemicals like DuPont or oil. or Nobody knew where he made his money. Well, because the Kennedy family opened up his papers to me, I know. Uh, he made them through extraordinary stock manipulations that began with his Hollywood stock options. He would have liked to be president, but that was not much of a possibility. Though he all his life insisted, I am an American. My parents are American. Though he never went to Ireland. Though he did go to church, because as Gloria Swanson said, he enjoyed confession. He could, <laughs> he could wipe away whatever sins had happened that week where he could not succeed because he was an Irish Catholic, he believed his children could. He accumulated his fortune purposefully so that his children would not have to 
so that they could convert the financial capital into political capital. He taught them how to appear in public. It was no accident that Jack did so well in the debates because he had grown up all his life in front of newsreel cameras with his father telling him how to look, what to say, where to look. Fearing that the Depression would destroy capitalism and with it the fortune he had accumulated, he supported FDR, though his hero was Hearst. When FDR appointed him as the first chairman of the Securities and Exchange Commission, he used that position not to enrich himself or his friends or his family or his children, but to protect capitalism. As SEC chairman, he outlawed every one of the tricks of the trade he had used to accumulate his fortune. <laughs> he brought in William Douglas and Abe Fortas liberals to oversee bankruptcies and receiverships. He registered stock exchanges and securities, demanded that corporations supply regular, accurate, audited financial data, restricted short selling, forbid the publishing of false financial statements in prospectuses, stop brokers from pumping up prices and volumes by trading in multiple or falsely registered accounts, he outlawed pools, corners, wash souls, match orders, dummy sales, insider, and specialist trading abuses. And then, having cleaned up Wall Street, knowing he could no longer make a profit, he moved all his money out of the stock market into real estate. He had to this point succeeded in everything he had put his mind to, made millions and a reputation in Washington as a miracle man an FDR confidant, and then it all fell apart and rapidly. As American ambassador to Great Britain, his primary goal was to protect American capitalism. He preached appeasement, which would not become a dirty word until later, because he was convinced that American capitalism would not survive a world war, that Hitler and Germany were too strong, that if the United States materially assisted Great Britain or entered the war, win, lose, or draw, democracy would be weakened. And capitalism, too, as had been the case with every country at war. He used his position as ambassador to rail against the British, Churchill in particular, against British perfidy, their lack of preparation for the war, their reliance on the Americans to bail them out. A successful businessman, he was confident he could negotiate a deal with anyone on anything. And so he reached out to Adolf Hitler through a number of secret channels to negotiate the release of the Jews from their German imprisonment an infusion of dollars and oil to Germany, and peace. Didn't work out that way. He opposed American intervention in the war until the very end. But unlike Hearst, he didn't lose his fortune, but he lost his reputation and any political influence he might have had. He returned to the United States universally loathed by all, except the American firsters, who turned against him as well, when he refused to endorse their campaign. And he kept talking his nonsense. 
against Britain, against the Jews for fomenting the war, against Washington. He was not alone in being an anti-Semite, but singular in his failures to disguise it. The war, as he may have feared, robbed him of the most important thing in his life, his son, who he believed might be president. And then it took a little while later his daughter Kick, who remained in England, married one Protestant, had an affair with another, then died tragically, as had her brother in a plane crash. His sickly son Jack, who no one, certainly not Joe, believed would ever succeed in anything because he was feckless, had no discipline, fooled around too much, read too much, and was unbelievably frail. Came back from the war even frailer with malaria, but somehow rose to the occasion, was elected to the House and the Senate with the father's enormous political savvy and wealth. To help his son's candidacy, Joseph Kennedy retreated from public controversy and kept his mouth shut. By 1960, when Jack ran for the presidency, his father hoped, prayed, that America had changed sufficiently in the four decades since he, Joe, had graduated from Harvard, that Kennedy could be elected to national office despite the fact that he was Irish and Catholic. JFK won the election. But the day after, the reporters who covered his acceptance speech at the armory were shocked to see his father looking so downtrodden. His father was astounded, enraged, saddened. Millions of Americans had voted for Democrats for Congress, but not for his son. Congressional Democrats got 55% of the vote in the 1960 election. Kennedy got 49.8% of the vote. He was the first president elected with a minority of Protestant votes. He won only because of the Jewish and the black vote. Kennedy had access and accumulated one of America's great independent fortunes by reinventing himself as a Christian among Jews and then in Washington as a bridge between establishment wasps and the politically powerful Irish Catholic voting bloc. Though he had played the ethnic card to perfection, he had hoped that his children would not have to. And he had a stroke and then he died before it became clear that in large part because of the legacy of Kennedy's thousand days, Catholics could from that point on, Irish Catholics, run for national political office. Kennedy would not have cried at the fact that tribalism and prejudice remained in American politics, but had he lived long enough, he would have been delighted that Irish Catholics were no longer among the despised. Andrew Carnegie is the third mogul I have written about. And his failures are for me the most poignant. Carnegie was a manufacturer and proud of it, not a stock manipulator or a media baron. 
He made things people needed. Iron for bridges, steel for railroads and skyscrapers. He had determined early in his career as a capitalist manufacturer that he was going to give away all of his money. Not as a gift, but because it didn't belong to him. He was a silly little man under five feet tall. He had great organizational skills. But his fortune, his steel, had been created by the coal and iron miners, the puddlers, the molders, the barrow men, the railroad workers, and the immigrants who swelled the population and, with the native-born, moved westward through Pittsburgh, thereby creating a market for the railroad tracks he manufactured. It was to the community that he was going to give back his money, and he did. He wanted very much not only to be a philanthropist, but he wanted to be a boss. His Scottish Chartist forebears would be proud of. And he was. He was the model boss when he owned iron foundries and was on a first-name relationship with his foreman and his workers and his union, the Amalgamated. But capitalism has its own logic. And not even Andrew Carnegie could escape it or defeat it. To succeed in a capitalist economy, he had to keep his labor costs low. And he did so by enforcing a 12-hour workday and a six-and-a-half-day-a-week work week. He paid minimal, barely subsistent wages. His workers worked under the worst, most dangerous of circumstances in his mills. And to make sure that everything stayed the way he wanted it to, so he could make the maximum profit, so that he would have the maximum amount of money to give away, he abandoned the ethics, the principles he had inherited from his chartist forebears. He moved to New York City to escape the city whose air he had fouled and whose citizens he exploited. And he reinvented himself as a public intellectual and peace activist. He saw war coming in Europe, and he knew it would be the most deadly, devastating war in history. So he took it on, upon himself to stop that war from happening, to force the leaders of Europe and America to agree in advance that they would, in the next dispute, not send young men to die to settle that dispute, but they would submit it to a court of arbitration, a world court, for peaceful judgment. The 20th century, he hoped and expected, would be a century of civilization, not barbarism, but only after war was outlawed. Rich man can do a lot. Andrew Carnegie, to broker a peace between Great Britain and Prussia, the rivals who were most likely to go to war, he hired President Theodore Roosevelt to act as his surrogate. He paid for Roosevelt's safari, enabling the former president to kill as many animals as possible stuff them and send them back to the Museum of Natural History. In return, 
Roosevelt agreed to meet with Kaiser Wilhelm II of Germany and his uncle, who just happened to be Edward VII of Britain, and broker between the two of them a bilateral treaty of arbitration, which Carnegie expected would be followed by dozens of other such treaties. Carnegie's plans went nowhere. He was betrayed immediately by Roosevelt, who told the Kaiser that unlike Carnegie, he believed in war, that war was sometimes necessary, that it had its place in modern life. Carnegie didn't give up. When Roosevelt failed him, he cultivated his successor, William Howard Taft. He had peace meetings. He wrote about peace. He formed clubs about peace. He lobbied the heads of state to sign arbitration treaties. And then, in the summer of 1914, when he, as he always did, spent his long summer, his six-month summer in Scotland, as he predicted, the spark he had spent the last 20 years trying to extinguish took flame. And absent any compulsory arbitration mechanisms or world courts or international leagues of peace, the nations of Europe resorted to violence to settle a local dispute. Carnegie returned to the United States and tried to get Wilson to intervene, but he would not. He celebrated his 79th birthday in November of 1914. And he said in a discussion with the press that if a league of peace were not established, a meaningful league of peace, at the end of the war, the vanquished would rise up again to renew the cycle of bloodshed. In March of 1915, he was asked in an interview with the New York Times whether he'd lost faith. And he said, no. The world war then raging was so horrendous so deadly, so violent, so barbaric that the peoples of the world could not possibly do this again. That they would be forced to form the League of Nations or the League of Peace, as he called it, that he had envisioned. After this interview, as the war ground down, ground on, Andrew Carnegie retreated into silence. He stopped talking. He stopped seeing visitors. He stopped corresponding. He refused to read the newspapers. His friends and families were distraught at the disappearance of this once voluble, active little man, a little man who could not stop talking, who when he got married worked out hand signals with his wife so she could shut him up and let other people at the dinner table talk. He had had some sort of nervous breakdown brought about by his failure to use his resources, his connections, to stop the war. What I have learned about writing the lives of my three moguls is that you can't write a life without writing a life and times. The biographer's task is to tell the story of their subjects' journeys from the world they were born into to the worlds they leave behind. And in telling these stories, to examine the ways in which their subjects either accept or reinforce the structures in place at the time of their births, 
racial, ethnic, gender, economic, class, political, cultural, social, political, or attempt to push beyond them, to transcend them, to make a new world. My three moguls succeeded as individuals in converting their economic power into political and cultural power and in contributing to significant changes over time in the way we get our news, understand the fragility of capitalism and democracy, convert wealth into power, try to end the scourges of war. But the changes they wrought were not the ones they sought. In the end, try as they might, with all the wealth they possessed and all the power it gave them, they couldn't, to paraphrase Mr. Jagger and Mr. Richards, get what they wanted or what they needed. The story of their lives and their attempts to change the world and their failures shine a bright light on their times and ours. My three moguls were able to accomplish a great deal, make a lot of money, and then use that money to influence the shape of the world they lived in. Along the way, they did their best to convince the rest of us that their ability to make money, to be titans, captains of industry, was transferable to other realms, not only the cultural and social, but the political. They attempted to convince us that the wealth they had accumulated was sign and symbol of their intelligence, their problem-solving abilities, their wisdom, their ability to lead the rest of us. They gloried in their wealth, they gloried in their power, and they accentuated their ability to get things done. It is vitally important that we, as writers and readers of biographies, of the rich and powerful sometimes, that we demystify, deconstruct the power of finance capital to remake the world in its vision. We must not be deceived into believing the claims of the rich and powerful or affording those who triumphed in the marketplace the keys to our kingdom. Thank you. That was award-winning author David Nassau delivering the 12th annual Levy Center Lecture in the City University of New York's Leon Levy Center for Biography on September 25, 2019. Thanks again to the Levy Center and to David Nassau for granting us permission to share this lecture. To learn more about bio or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Enzo De Palma created our theme music. And until next time, thanks so much for listening and have a great day. Bye.